0: American Social History
1: Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at
0: ashp.cuny.edu. In part one of this
1: podcast, Martha Hodes of New York University speaks to New York City teachers about how to present the era of reconstruction in the classroom. This talk took place on February 15, 2007 at the Graduate Center. this afternoon is talk to you about um, how you can present the era of Reconstruction in your classrooms. And the themes that I've chosen for today are, as Ellen announced, land and labor, and then there are sub themes of conflict, compromise, and violence. So to begin, I want to read you the words spoken by a member of General Sherman's staff during Sherman's infamous march to the sea in the Civil War, This man said that Sherman had made war, quote, so terrible that when peace comes, it will last. And I believe that's on the sheet. Sherman had made war so terrible that when peace comes, it will last. And I want you to keep that that statement in mind. And it might also be a good statement to relate to your students. Um, The statement prompts us to ask, when the war was over, would peace last? Now, another way to present this to your students is to say that although the Civil War, the military conflict, was over, conflict itself was far from over in the United States in 1865. And this is kind of a good way to get started on this discussion, I would say. Chapter 3 from Forever Free by Eric Foner, that you've read for today, I think sets out really well conflicting ideas about meanings of freedom. The key here, I think, is the plural, meanings. Not one meaning, but many meanings. Different historical actors had different ideas and convictions about what it meant for African-Americans to be free. In 1865, African-Americans had seized their freedom, or you could say President Lincoln had granted black freedom. The Constitution of the United States legalized that freedom. Now, freedom had to be defined, and that's a good starting place, I think, for our students, whether college students like I teach or K-12 students. What did freedom mean for the everyday lives of former slaves? And what did black freedom mean for the everyday lives of former masters? More broadly, we could ask, how would black freedom change the daily lives of black southerners and white southerners? I think it's important for our students to understand that emancipation didn't affect only African Americans. The transition from slavery to freedom changed the lives of all southerners. Now, of course, there were black people who had been free in the South before the Civil War, and of course, there were many white Southerners who had never owned slaves. But the historical actors most immediately and deeply affected by the Civil War and emancipation were the enslaved and their masters. And all of their actions, I would say, in turn affected the lives of all Southerners and in many ways, all Americans, not just Southerners. Now here's some quotations that you'll find on the sheet. One freedman recalled that his former master told him that he was now, quote, free to work and live for yourself. That would be the key, that would be the test. Under what conditions would African-Americans who had previously been enslaved work and live for themselves? How did black southerners envision freedom? How did white southerners envision black freedom? And how did northerners envision black freedom? Conflicts over land and labor lay at the heart of the answers to these questions. Those conflicts lay at the heart of Reconstruction. The slave South, after all, had been built on land and labor. The conflict between the Union and the Confederacy in the Civil War centered around land and labor precisely because that conflict centered around slavery. So let me start by talking about going through these different visions of black freedom. I'm going to start by talking about the former slaves, also called the freed people. First, it's important to understand that after the Civil War, African-American communities made it a priority to form institutions of their own. Separate black churches were especially central unifying institutions for post-Civil War African-Americans. And church communities took black political goals as their own goals. So there was a real um, connection between church and community and the politics and economics of emancipation. Just as important as churches for African Americans at this moment were schools. Free people placed tremendous value on education. They made the point that ignorance was another form of bondage. So here's a quotation from a black man who fought in the Union Army in 1865. And it's, this should be on the handout. He said, we stand deeply in need of instruction, the majority of us having been slaves. We wish to become a people capable of self-support as we are capable of being soldiers. He summed up his motives as moral and literary elevation. Education, very important. Now, equally important, and this is the focus of today's lecture. Free people wanted to own land. Let me just put this question to you briefly, and this is also a good discussion to have with your students, no matter what level you're teaching at. Why was it so important to former slaves that they owned land? What was going on here? Why, why did land matter so deeply? Um, any thoughts about that? I'm sure some of you know more about Reconstruction than others, but what kind of issues might, um, might come up in this deep, deep um, desire for land ownership? Big deal. Did, did you? Not, having to work for,
0: not, not having to work for someone else. Yes,
1: absolutely. Not having to work for someone else. And what were you going to say? Symbolize
0: something yes. else. Tangible. Absolutely was land with land
1: Very good point. So a real symbol of, of material. Yes, do you want to say something? Uh,
0: it's that Jeffersonian point that mm-hmm. you really only mm-hmm. can be free if you're right. if you're not indebted to someone else, right. and that's to be the landowner. That's
1: the good. essence. Of good. Good. So there's real American history roots that, by the way, African Americans were very aware of. Any other any other points? Wonderful points that have just been made so far. Okay, great. So so this idea of being able to farm your own land meant just as as people said, working for, providing for yourself and your family, to work for yourself, to provide for your own family, meant self-sufficiency, independence, autonomy, okay? Now, remember Eric Foner's discussion of autonomy for freed people, that was from today's reading, the freedom to vote, to go to school, to hold meetings, to worship, to marry, to travel, even to dress the way you wanted to dress. These were the ingredients of autonomy, all of which added up to freedom from white control. And that's, I think, what what the responses earlier were alluding to. Owning your own land, being able to provide for yourself, would undo the dynamics of the master-slave relationship. No more dependence upon white people, no more forced labor, no more vulnerability to white violence. Specifically, free people envisioned themselves after the Civil War as farmers living in self-sufficient agricultural communities. And this brings up the Jeffersonian point that was just mentioned. In American history, in the whole trajectory of US history, land ownership traditionally went hand in hand with citizenship. This is ideology that went back to the revolution. If you owned land, right, you had a stake in society. If you had a stake in society, you were entitled to the rights of citizenship. So in this vision, land ownership meant you were entitled to the vote. Land ownership led to suffrage in this vision, this American vision. So you have land ownership, autonomy, citizenship, voting rights, all of those are intertwined in a way that, that they really can't be today um, in an industrial, post-industrial world, especially in a place like New York City where owning real estate has nothing to do with citizenship, but very, very much a part of the world of freed people at this moment in U.S. history. Okay, so that was the ideology. Now, what about the reality of land ownership for African-Americans after the Civil War? Um, This was in your reading, Sherman's Field Order Number 15. You might remember that or might have known about it already. Before the war ended, General Sherman had issued this field order in which African-American families living on the coastal islands of South Carolina and Georgia were each to receive 40 acres of land, hence the 40 acres and a mule. Thousands of black families, in fact, settled on land under this field order. A great many others settled themselves on land that had, ab- had been abandoned by white Southerners during the war. However, most former slaves were not able to acquire land. Of course, the purchase of land was nearly impossible since most freed people had no savings. Even if they had resources to buy, white Southerners certainly could refuse to sell them land. Now, When the war ended, many freed people hoped that the United States government would give them land. This is a really, um, I think, a very rich topic for conversation in all of our classrooms. On the part of the freed people, this was understood not as a gift, but rather as compensation in return for decades of uncompensated slave labor. So here we have a series of black voices on this subject, just to give you a sense of this vision. 1865, even before the war had ended, a group of black men, most former slaves, offered a petition to General Sherman and they said, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor. We want to be placed on land until we are able to buy it and make it our own. So they had a vision of eventual land ownership. Another black man put it this way, the property which they hold, he said, he's referring to white Southerners, was nearly all earned by the sweat of our brows. Now there's a, there's a nice direct statement. A group of black people in Virginia drew up a resolution just after the war, and this resolution declared, quote, we scorn and treat with contempt the allegations that we understand freedom to mean idleness and indolence. We understand freedom to mean industry and the enjoyment of legitimate fruits thereof. So you can see all these kinds of American revolutionary ideologies in these statements. Free people also pointed out that if anyone could be characterized as lazy, it was white Southerners whom, as one black man noted, quote, lived in idleness all their lives on stolen labor, referring, of course, to slave labor. And when Southern whites said that freed people would never be able to provide for themselves, a former slave made the following observation. I like this one. We used to support ourselves and our masters too when we were slaves, and I reckon we can take care of ourselves now. That's one of my favorite ones to share with the students. Now, what that brings us to is the former masters themselves and white Southerners overall who had a very different vision of the South after emancipation. Perhaps needless to say, the lives of some wealthy white Southerners changed dramatically with the end of slavery. I'm going to tell you a little bit, uh, a story, a narrative about a woman named Ella Gertrude Clanton Thomas. She was the daughter of a wealthy planter in Georgia. This is a kind of a typical story of somebody who came from a wealthy white family. After the war, Thomas had to teach school. She had to take in borders to support herself and her family. She had to contend with debt, and finally, even a degree of poverty. One of her sons, in fact, was forced to leave school and work in the fields doing in her own words, quote, work which any Negro could have done as well. So in her vision of a racial hierarchy, this was a terrible thing to have happened. And she wrote in her diary, oh, it is humiliating. And then she was referring to black people who now spoke to white people with greater familiarity and she wrote respect is a quality I demand from servants. So she's still thinking about um, former slaves as people who are there to serve her. In short, the former planter classes, using the story of Ellen Thomas as a uh, as a kind of uh, representative anecdote, they would have liked the old order back, the order that they had known under slavery. Now, when it came to the issue of land, in contrast to the vision of African-Americans, white Southerners did not want former slaves to own land. And here's another question that I think is good to pose to our students, and that question is why not? Okay. Why was it so important to white Southerners after the Civil War that black people remain landless? Why wouldn't they want to foster black independence and subsequent separation from white people? What, what was the problem? What, what kind of things, what kind of answers would you expect your students? Yeah, please. Beautiful. Okay. So it would show equality. Anybody want to elaborate on that briefly in any way? How, how would it show equality? Anybody hasn't? Yes.
0: Because if we both on land, we're on the same level, and the, the whole point was to keep try any way possible to keep mm-hmm. uh, a subservient relationship. So, right. no, it's mine; it's not yours. You can't. Right.
1: Ask. Great. And and just anybody who hasn't spoken wanted to just yes. Becca. Um, also, the back to the power of the
0: voting and yeah. have power.
1: Exactly. So remember what you all just said. Land symbolized. Why would white people who wanted the old order want to share that? And anybody here who spoke before? Yeah, do you want to add anything?
0: Um, but then you still run into the problem, aside from racism and the like, is how is this land going to be acquired? If, right. your, if right. property is sank or sank, mm-hmm. are we just simply going to take it? Because right. then that puts people's property in
1: jeopardy. Right, absolutely. Good we'll point. We and we're going to be talking about that. Good, yes.
0: I uh, on the white southern view that they believe that that land was for their children did Very yes. want to give up that, very their, good. their
1: legacy. Absolutely. Very good point. Passed down through generations as that had already been done. So excellent, excellent responses, and I think um, a very good way to generate discussions among the students. White Southerners wanted to retain their own land and, for all the reasons you said, and to continue to produce profitable crops, right, like cotton, tobacco, rice, sugar. Those were the staple crops of the antebellum South. Production of those crops required intensive labor. That labor had been undertaken by slaves before the Civil War, of course. Now, white Southerners could no longer enslave black people. What they wanted, what they hoped after emancipation, was to employ former slaves, often their own particular former slaves, for wages. Now, white Southerners wanted to continue to use labor practices that served their own interests, long hours. Low pay, black dependence, even white violence, and you can find this in the documents, many of which I've read through over many years. What they wanted was to continue to control a black labor force just as they had done before the war. Former masters wanted to recreate the plantation system, the plantation structure, as nearly as possible in a society without the legal institution of slavery. Now you can see, and you will want your students to see this, just how deeply these two visions of the South conflicted with each other. On the one side, black land ownership, autonomy citizenship. On the other side, no black land ownership, a controlled black labor force, and of course no rights of citizenship for African Americans. Okay. The black vision, the white Southern vision, the mediator between these two utterly opposing visions was the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau, as you know, was the federal agency set up specifically to oversee the transition from slavery to freedom in the south. Before I talk specifically about the Freedmen's Bureau, it's important to know that a small minority of radical white northerners agreed with the freed people's vision. Okay, So in the north there were some radical whites who agreed that there should be what they called a redistribution of land in the South, taking land away from disloyal white southerners, distributing it among black families, who after all had been loyal to the Union during the Civil War. However, it's fair to say that most white northerners emphatically did not favor this position. Most white northerners agreed with white southerners that it was wrong to redistribute land. To do so would encourage a lack of a work ethic among black families. So um, white southerners do not stand alone in their ideas about the position of African Americans in the South after the Civil War. They often stand shoulder to shoulder with white northerners. One Boston abolitionist who traveled south to help freed people work on cotton plantations that had been abandoned by their masters, he sums up this attitude well. His name was Edward Philbrick. you don't really need to know his name, but anyway, um, he said former slaves, quote, would be better off paying $10 an acre for land, if the land is worth it, rather than $1 because, in this man's reasoning, they would use the land for which they had paid full price more economically and would be taught a feeling of independence more readily than being made the recipients of charity. So this is an argument against charity and saying, you know, let's make these people work for their land. Now, the irony here was that Philbrick and his partners, his business partners, had bought 8,000 acres of confiscated land at less than a dollar an acre, okay? But somehow he was above, you know, being a white person, he must have imagined himself somehow above the idea of charity. As one black man responded, quote, man, don't talk about Mr. Philbrick's land. Mr. Philbrick's got no right to that land. Okay, so... Free people understood what was going on. They, you know, White Southerners, white Northerners thought maybe they could impose a vision without any sort of resistance. Not, there was always somebody in black communities around the South who, re, who really got the picture and who made clear what was happening. And it's important to find those voices in the documents. In the end, the United States government returned almost all the confiscated land in the South to white people. Important fact. Freed people who had settled on land that whites had abandoned during the war were now forced to leave that land. As early as the end of 1866, nearly all the arable, the good farmable land, once controlled by the Freedmen's Bureau, farmed by African Americans, had been returned to ex-Confederates. Instead of the redistribution of land, most white Northerners wanted to see freed people start out with, um, as the phrase that was used at the time, called it, nothing but freedom. Nothing but freedom, then after that you labor to achieve upward mobility and land ownership through wage work on plantations. Not a perfect vision, but it has a certain amount of um, consistency to it. Okay, this was the compromise from the point of view of the US government. So the Freedmen's Bureau advocated fair labor contracts in which former masters would be the employers, right, since they own the land, and former slaves would be the employees since they did not own any land, and the, slave, the former masters needed workers to produce crops on that land. In this vision, if this vision were to go forward and work, in this vision the workers would have some control over the conditions of labor. So if a worker thought that the pay was too low or the hours were too long, he or she could find another job. That way through fair wage labor, African Americans could save up money become landowners themselves. As I said, from the point of view of the freed people, far from ideal, given the history of, of four centuries of slavery, and yet at least there was a certain consistency to that ideology. Now, um, what did white southerners think of the Freedmen's Bureau? As a rule, they disliked it. Of course, the Bureau symbolized the conquest of the South by the North. And of course, Freedmen's Bureau policies made it much harder to recreate the conditions of slavery it was the job of the Freedmen's Bureau to protect black workers from exploitation by their white employers. So Bureau agents were supposed to encourage written contracts, and Bureau agents were supposed to mediate disputes over how those contracts should be interpreted. As for what freed people thought of the Freedmen's Bureau, they also pretty much disliked it because in practice, the Bureau often served as an ally of the former masters. In practice, the contracts often favored white employers, disfavored black workers, and in order not to be left at the mercy of whites, freed people often had no choice but to abide by the terms in the contract. So in practice, it was a much more conflicted, contentious arrangement that was going on. Now, what I want to do here is introduce a really important point that I have tried over the years to convey to my students. And I know you're working on different levels, but I hope that you will find a way to convey this to your students. Here's the point, just put simply. The vision of the US government for reconstruction in the South, the vision I just spelled out, Freedmen's Bureau, was deeply flawed. And let me explain what I mean by that. The northern vision of reconstruction in the South, as embodied in the Freedmen's Bureau, was based on the idea that if a person worked hard, got paid fair wages, then that person would be able to save money and with that money would be able to buy land. Okay, That's the vision, pure and simple. Hard work led to land ownership, hard work therefore led to all the things that you mentioned earlier, independence, self-sufficiency, autonomy, all of those things. The trouble with this vision, this may be the most important point I make today was that by 1865, that whole progression of events I just went through was pretty much already an impossibility in the nation, whether in the North or in the South. Let me just explain what I mean a little bit more about that. In the decades before the Civil War, the North had experienced the beginnings of industrialization. Okay, So farm families that had passed down land for generations no longer had enough land for each son. Farming families had to move to cities, find work in factories. Men, women, and children all worked in the factories in the north. Labor once performed by skilled artisans like shoemaking, for example, now became unskilled factory labor where each person just did the same repetitive little part of making a shoe rather than one person making the whole shoe. And the wages paid for factory work were very, very low. All of this meant that there was a permanent class of wage laborers in the North Key Point. Most wage laborers, no matter how hard they worked, how many hours, how frugal they were, would never be able to save up enough money to buy land. The fact was there was very little realistic opportunity for upward mobility through hard work at this moment in American history. However, the US government and the Freedmen's Bureau set out to model reconstruction in the south on a vision that we could say had already failed in the north. In the end, most former slaves went to work for people who had once been slave owners, often their own masters. Sometimes freed people were paid wages as the Freedmen's Bureau had envisioned. But most of the time something else came to pass and this was another compromise. This was the compromise of sharecropping, which I'm sure many of you know about. Most of the time, the black workers were paid not in cash that they could save up to buy land for, but rather with shares of the crops they planted. Under sharecropping, just briefly go over this in case people aren't familiar with it, a family lived on a piece of land owned by someone else, Okay, so owned by, say, the former slave master. The family was responsible to grow, grow crops on that land and they were paid by the landowner with an annual portion or share of those crops. So you plant I don't know, 100 acres of cotton and then 20 of those acres are for you to sell to get the money to do what you want with. Now sharecropping worked greatly to the disadvantage of the laborers. First of all, a sharecropping family was usually not paid well enough to be self-sufficient. Their share of the crop was not enough to be sold for things like farming tools or even food and clothing. What that meant was that sharecropping families were forced to borrow money from their employers just in order to live on a day-to-day basis. In order to pay back that money, they had to forfeit some of the next payment with part of next year's crop. So what sharecropping meant for black families in the South at this time was a cycle of debt that was very, very hard to get out of. And in fact, if people here have studied the Great Migration, when families moved from the south to the north, they were sometimes so indebted to the person whose land they lived on that they would have to flee in the middle of the night, get on a train, go north, and never come back, because they were in debt on paper, and there was nothing they could do about it. Now, the point here is that black black laborers at this moment were no longer supervised on an hourly basis, not even on a daily basis, um, by white employers, They often had written contracts that offered a measure of protection from exploitation, but they were still a long way from land ownership, a very long way from the original vision of freed people of this self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy, as you can see. Now an important point I think to make to our students here is that black southerners didn't simply accept this state of affairs. It sounds quite dismal, and it was very dismal in the lives of the people we're talking about, but there was a tremendous degree of resistance and protest as black families struggled against the attempts of former masters to recreate the plantation system. Black families did this by, for example, refusing to, fa- to, um, to sign contracts that they believed to be exploitive. They refused to work in unfair conditions. They insisted that the Freedmen's Bureau intercede when white people attempted to exploit them. They often seized local and politi- lo- local uh, state political power in the rural South. They even organized their own armed militias as a way to defend their new rights. So constantly <clears throat> there was protest and resistance going on to this imposed vision of the Freedmen's Bureau, which so often worked in the favor of the former masters. But it's also important to understand, and here are the kinds of nuances of history where you want students to understand, you know, black people protested, but at the same time, it was really hard to protest, okay? Without access to their own land, black people did remain dependent upon white people for their daily survival. So resistance and protest only went so far, and it's a kind of delicate balance to get students to understand. A key point about black resistance, White Southerners, and former masters in particular, were intent upon retaining white supremacy in the absence of slavery. Here's where the factor of violence comes in. There was tremendous white violence in the Reconstruction South. And it's important that our students understand this. Depending on the level that you're teaching, you will obviously have to shape this part of your curriculum. And I can't imagine, um, as a college professor, I can't always imagine how that can be done in K through 12 class, uh, classrooms, but I trust that you, you know, know much more than I do about this. So I'm going I'm to give you, you know, the, the version that I would give to college students or, for the most part, and then you can obviously shape it for your own students. Um, white southerners started the Ku Klux Klan as soon as the war was over. And the organization, by the way, took its name from the Greek word circle, which was kouklos, case anybody wants to know, and it was meant to be, by the way, it was meant to be a a strange name, a name that nobody understood. Now, you've read some about the Klan in Eric Foner's chapter on the facts of Reconstruction, and at the end of this presentation, shortly, we're going to look together at the primary source document you have there, but let me just say this for the moment in the context of what I've talked about so far. Branches of the Klan existed at least for some time in all Southern states. Klan membership included all classes of white Southerners. Leaders were usually drawn from the wealthier classes. Clan tactics ranged from the destruction of property to personal violence to murder. African Americans did fight back, but often for blacks to defend themselves meant even greater white retaliation. So again, that balance of protest and kind of futility. Victims of clan attacks had very little effective legal recourse. When individual states passed anti clan laws, those laws proved nearly impossible to enforce. And on the federal level, President Grant's determination to control the Klan didn't succeed in arrests and convictions until 1871. So that's a lot of years of violence going on. Now we're going to come back to the Klan shortly. And let's just put that aside for a moment because I also want to talk about other forms of white violence. White violence was also the most effective way to keep black men from voting. Let me just give you an especially stark illustration of the dismantling of radical reconstruction in the South. 1875 Mississippi elections. Newspapers, white newspapers trumpeted the slogan, quote, carry the election peacefully if we can, forcibly if we must, okay? Okay. So the newspapers are saying, you know, we want the Democratic Party, that's the party of the white South, to win, carry the election peacefully if we can, forcibly if we must. It's an invitation to white violence. Whites threatened and assaulted black voters, and their tactics were successful. Their tactics were so violent, so brutal as to be successful, and here is the the proof of that. In five of Mississippi's counties with heavy black majorities, the Republican Party, that is the party that represented African Americans during Reconstruction, Lincoln's party, polled, listen to these numbers for these five counties, 12, 7, 4, 2, and 0 votes respectively. So here are are counties with heavy black majorities and literally a handful of people who supported the Republican party could get through to vote in these polls. Very stark example. Now, at the same time, and here you can see I'm again going back and doing this kind of balancing, it's also important to impress upon our students that the disenfranchisement of African-Americans was not sudden in the South after the Civil War. During the late 1870s and 1880s, African-American men continued to vote, continued to hold office in the South. It wasn't really until about the 1890s into the early 20th century that almost complete disenfranchisement came to pass. So it took nearly 30 years, almost an entire generation, to deny African Americans the rights that they had seized during and after the Civil War. And this is a good example of how black resistance and protest stretched out the process of retaining white supremacy. It didn't happen right away. It did eventually happen because of all the kinds of things I've said. It was just too hard and life-threatening to resist this kind of white power, often armed power, et cetera. And eventually, complete disenfranchisement happened, but not right away, precisely because of the actions African Americans took themselves. At this point, I I like to point out to my students that the legal barriers to black enfranchisement were not struck down until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, during the Civil Rights Movement, 100 years after the end of the Civil War. Now, 1965 may seem like ancient history to our students, but we have to impress upon them that 100 years, it took a century after the Civil War for the Civil Rights Movement to undo some of what happened during Reconstruction. Okay, now I want you at this moment to think back to the words I quoted to you earlier, spoken by a member of Sherman's staff. This idea that Sherman had made war so terrible that when peace comes, it will last. Now we know that as terrible as the war had been, the post-Civil War South was far from a land of peace. When I'm in the process and when I'm at the end of teaching the era of reconstruction to my college students, I always like to have a discussion with them. How do we assess the era of reconstruction? What do we make of this? And again, you will make this fit in your own classrooms. But one of the most useful quotations I've invoked on this topic comes from the pioneering black historian of the early 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote the following, quote, I believe this is on the sheet. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back towards slavery. Very beautiful, evocative, tragic words in a way. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back towards slavery. So we could say the following. African Americans won freedom in the Civil War, but they did not win equality. Sometimes just throwing that out in your classroom is a good way to get students talking. The Civil War made America a land of freedom only if freedom is defined as a land without the the legal institution of slavery. So a very simple definition of freedom, you're not a slave, you're free, okay, that, that could work. Or, and I'm not saying one of these is right and one is wrong, we could also say the following. If freedom for African Americans after the Civil War did not mean equality, it also and emphatically did not mean slavery either. So even, you could say, even brief equality for African Americans had long-term effects, most notably in the foundations of the Civil Rights Movement 100 years later in the 1960s. There are different ways to, I hate to use the word spin, there are different ways to interpret, to analyze this very complicated era. But I think what matters for me in my classroom in terms of making sense out of the history of Emancipation, Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow, their legacies into the next century and the present day, is precisely to acknowledge the complexities of history. Again things that will work in different ways with different levels of students. And in fact sometimes even in the college classroom where I work, I find that that's the hardest point to get across, the complexities of history but I do urge you to try. I think it matters a great deal in getting students interested in history. So here's a series of points that I hope can help you convey the complexities of this era to your students. Let me just go through these briefly, and then we will turn to the Klan testimony. The Civil War was over, but violence still reigned in the South. Okay, that's the first point. Another point. Freedom may seem straightforward, but no one could agree on what freedom meant after the Civil War and Emancipation. Next point. The American ideal of upward mobility conflicted with the reality of a permanent class of wage workers in the decades after the Civil War. We talked about that. You have this ideal of upward mobility, but then you have this impossible to get out of class of wage workers. Okay, next point. Slavery was legally over, but the conditions of black labor remained very similar to slave labor. Three more points. Next one, the 14th and 15th amendments. Those were amendments that granted citizenship to all black people and the rights of suffrage to black men. Those amendments granted citizenship and suffrage, but African Americans were still denied those legal rights often for another hundred years. So what the Constitution says is one thing and what's happening in people's lives is another. Next to last point. African-Americans mightily resisted white supremacy, but white Americans countered that resistance with tremendous violence. And the last point, after the Civil War, African-Americans won freedom, but not equality. And that sums up much of what I've been saying and is often a good starting point for discussions in your classroom. There may be no better historical moment to illustrate the complexity of history. Than the era of Reconstruction. And I think if we can get our students just to see that the study of history rests on complexity, where there aren't simple answers, we'll have accomplished a good part of our job, which is, of course, to impart history, but also to get students interested in history, thinking about history, thinking about how exciting and complicated it is. Okay. Um, I'd like to turn to the Clan testimony, but should we do? Should we have some questions, Ellen? Do we have some time for that? What do you. Think? Yeah, if people, uh, sure, I'm happy to take a few minutes if anybody has questions or, or comments or reflections you'd like to add to what I said, um, experiences to share, anything that you want to bring here. And then within a few minutes, we'll turn to the client Testimony and spend some time on that. Any? Yeah, please. Other than W.E.B. Du
0: Bois and Pupil T. Martin, because it seems like those are the staple, right. are there any other outspoken or sort of like pre-activists right. that, are, that are trying to reverse this disenfranchisement?
1: Yeah. That's a really great question. Um, Booker T. Washington and Du Bois are wonderful and amazing. Sometimes I feel like Du Bois said everything (laughs) first that we've all been saying for a hundred years since. The one person I would mention um, in that group, and maybe it's somebody you've talked about in your classrooms, is Frederick Douglass. There is a really wonderful book that I just recommended to a different group of teachers in Brooklyn where I did a workshop. It's called Frederick Douglass's Civil War. And it follows Frederick Douglass, who of course was a runaway slave and an an outspoken activist, from before the Civil War, through the war, and after the war. And Douglass is, again, he's sort of like Du Bois. He kind of gets to all the places Abraham Lincoln gets, but just a little bit before Lincoln gets there, and really eloquent and beautiful, and um, also a conflicted person, but a really really wonderful person to study. And just reading that book, the author is David Blight, B-L-I-G-H-T. is almost like a textbook. You could almost use it for yourselves as a textbook from which to teach. I assign it to my students as a textbook so they read it all through the Civil War course chapter by chapter. Um, But the other answer to that question is that there are many, many eloquent, beautiful voices of people, white people, black people, um, protesting the policies of reconstruction, but they're not well known and they're just being dug up. Those kinds of documents are just being dug up. I guess the other source I might recommend to you, although it's, it's a kind of labor-intensive source, is a series um, of three books, which is just called Freedom, by, um, edited by a scholar named Ira Berlin and a whole group of scholars, and it's just a collection of documents. So I know that you're all overworked and you're busy if there's time, or you're interested. Um, I've often found really great documents in this series called Freedom. They're documents from the Library of Congress, from the archives there, and you can find wonderful quotations. Some of what I put on that sheet today comes from that book, so that's my other recommendation. Other thoughts or uh, questions or comments, reflections about anything? Yeah, uh, yeah. go ahead.
0: Are you going to approach the idea that maybe it was possible for Reconstruction to have been successful because uh-huh. of the kind of dramatic change that it would have required? Right. It would have meant seizing, um, expropriating mm-hmm. land. I mean, it would have made turning the government into a Joseph Stalin seizing Kulak's land, or a, right. or a Castro doing the same. And that's just something that, that just couldn't happen.
1: Right, and that's actually, I think, also a kind of conversation I've had in my classroom that's been very interesting. It's what historians often call a counterfactual, what would have happened if. And here, the counterfactual is, what would have happened if the federal government had taken the position of the radical Republicans African Americans, white white radicals, and said, you know what, we're taking land away from these former Confederates who are disloyal to the government, and we are giving it to black families who are loyal to the Union government, right? Sounds logical. We're going to do this. Then what would have happened? We don't know the answer. Um, Civil War again, armed revolution, uh, the eventual subduing of white Southerners, who knows? But it's good to get students thinking about that, talking about that, how would, how would um, how would white Southern families have reacted? How would that have affected relations among white Southerners and black Southerners? What would have happened on the ground in daily lives? How about
0: white Northerners? And because white Northerners, because right. if you okay. made mm-hmm. property not,
1: mm-hmm. not protected
0: in mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. place, right. down point. the road.
1: No, absolutely. So it's a huge... And complicated and wonderful point for discussion. Yeah.
0: yeah my, my question relates yeah. to that. Was there maybe a lack of support in the North since, since yes. Northern veterans weren't being granted any types of land?
1: Yes, there was definitely a lack of support in the North for what was called land reform. Land reform being the phrase that referred to just what I said, taking land away from disloyal whites and giving it to loyal black families. Um, the white Southerners were in favor of that. They believed they. They wanted especially to believe that the work ethic still mattered, that you had to work for something, that you you couldn't just be given something, you had to work for it. And of course, you know, the the, the point that, that outspoken African Americans were trying to make was that they had been working for this land for four centuries, but that wasn't something whites from any part of the US were willing to hear. You're quite right, and you're you're also right about White veterans of the war. There are also a lot of poor people, poor families in the north who would have liked to be have been given land, although they hadn't been enslaved. But you know, there there were arguments that um, white wage workers were treated as badly as slaves. So there's all kinds of complicated issues that make the the idea of land reform an ideal that would have been much, much harder to carry out. So that's a counterfactual that's sometimes fun to bring to our students. Did you want to add to that? Yeah, yeah I was just what happened
0: you said most of the land went back to southerners. Mm-hmm. What about land that was seized by harbor banners?
1: Um, we see was carpetbaggers being Northerners who came down to the South. Almost all of that land was eventually returned to white Southerners. Um, some of that might have taken longer because some of what you call carpetbaggers, and Northerners in the South, might have set up, some of them set up kind of um, what they called free labor experiments where they managed the land, people like Edward Filbrick, right, but they employed African American families. Eventually that land was returned as well. And especially when reconstruction ended and it was out of the hands of the federal government, and the white South was net controlling their own region again, all of that went back. Any other questions or comments um, before we return or before we return to the document? Anybody oh, want to bring up or bring up any thoughts or questions? Anything? Um, anybody who hasn't spoken, so let me just make sure that everyone gets a turn. Okay, why don't you just make a last brief comment and then we'll...
0: Um, because we've been talking about the seizing of land. I mean, maybe we ought to, we ought to talk about whether the idea of compensation mm-hmm. would have mm-hmm. helped in mm-hmm. the transformation or the transfer of land. Mm-hmm. So then you wouldn't be seizing, you'd be true. paying and compensating.
1: That's true. Oh. The, the, the thing to remember, and it's also a wonderful topic for discussion, the thing to remember, of course, is that... Um, land itself was so valuable at this moment in american history that people didn't feel there was anything to equal it but absolutely worth worth discussion discussing